1: Father, we thank you so much again for the opportunity to learn from you. Lord, I pray that you would do the speaking here. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your provisions for our salvation. May we understand the the, the worth and value that you have to us, that you are our creator and our maker, and may we truly honor you for what you are and who you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Part six of the Media on the Brain seminar, The Pleasure Trap going to talk a little bit more about the brain in this session. We're also going to look at some other things like Facebook and texting and spectator sports and the multitasking generation that we find ourselves in. We also need to ask just a question about pleasure in general and how do we understand amusement and pleasure and entertainment in these matters as Christians. I want to begin with a quotation from a religious philosopher and apologist named Ravi Zacharias. He says the following, The closer we get to a pure and holy pleasure, the closer we are to the heart of God. The further we get from a pure and holy pleasure, the further we are from the heart of God. Do you understand what he's saying here? It's always stated and assumed that when we enter into worldly pleasure, we are far from the heart of God. But is pleasure bad? Is this Media on the Brain seminar some sort of anti-fun, anti-joy message? Absolutely not. I like what Ravi Zachariah says. We could get away from the heart of God by diving into worldly things and sin and entertainment and the pleasures of this world. But we could also get far from the heart of God by pursuing a grumpy, cold religion with no sun and joy and peace to it. Just a stern-faced religion. In fact, God designed life. To be immensely pleasurable, I want to talk for a minute about an exercise that I've done with my students. I had my students make a list on the board at the front of the classroom of all of the different components of a balanced, healthy Christian life, an abundant life, if you will. What is the Christian life filled with? What are our days filled with in terms of what we do? Well, of course, sleep and rest, exercise, healthy eating. The Christian obviously is engaged in Bible study, prayer and worship and serving, but also we're engaged in study. You know, we study God's amazing world. We study mathematics and science and all of these things. What else is a component of an abundant life? Of course, we have the human relationships God has given to us. Useful labor. That's huge for the people of God to be doing something practical and productive with our hands or with our minds. And then last of all, recreation. It is an important piece of the puzzle of who God created us to be, that we engage in some form of recreation. And we're going to get more back to that. But first, I have to ask a question about the Hebrew language. This is an interesting little thing. The ancient Hebrew language doesn't contain our word spiritual. So in other words, when the biblical writers were writing and when the Jews of old in Jesus' day were speaking, they didn't use the word spiritual as we have it. They just didn't have that word in their language. That made me ask the question, Why didn't they have that word in their language? Well, here's the answer. Everything was considered spiritual. So you didn't have to identify something as spiritual to make it as distinct from something that is not. And if if the entire world were one color and it was all red, we wouldn't need the word red because we wouldn't have a concept of different colors. You don't need a word if everything applies under the heading of that word. If everything is spiritual, you don't have to identify anything as spiritual. In other words... The Hebrew philosophy, the biblical mindset, has a worldview where everything that we do has spiritual significance. Whether it's doing a mathematics problem or building a house or whatever it is. As the Apostle Paul put it, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever we do, that's a powerful truth. Everything we do, even in our amusement. And I want to think about recreation versus amusement here in this quotation from the book Education. Recreation, when taken when true to its name, recreation tends to strengthen and build up, calling us aside from our ordinary cares and occupations, it affords refreshment for mind and body, and thus enables us to return with new vigor to the earnest work of life. Amusement on the other hand, is sought for the sake of pleasure and is often carried to excess. It absorbs the energies that are required for useful labor, and thus proves a hindrance to life's true success. So you see, recreation versus amusement, two competing principles at work. Recreation is a recreating thing. It fills me with new life and vigor to be able to return to the work of life with more refreshment. But amusement, you heard, is different. Amusement is more of just a distraction. Amusement is just, I want to have pleasure. In fact, what does that word amusement mean? The word amusement means uh, comes from two words, ah and muse. Ah means not or a negation, and muse means to think. So to ah muse or to be ah means to not think. Now this is not something that a thinking Christian wants to be embracing. We want to be people of who love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's never a point where we just turn off the mind and enter into absurd folly and amusement. Recreation is good, but our amusement, to just not be a thinking person, to turn off that frontal lobe as we've been talking about, is not something that we want to do. We get rest for our minds during sleep. Now I have a question. What sort of recreations are we engaged in? Are we engaged in recreation that distracts us from God? or that refreshes us to continue to serve God. And I want to use Gideon as the example of this. You remember the story of Gideon's soldiers. Gideon had an army and God wanted to bring them out into the battle, but he said, you have too many soldiers. I need to whittle your 10,000 soldiers down, uh, 32,000 down to 10,000. And these 10,000 were the ones that wanted to participate in the battle, but God said, there's still too many. I want you to do a a little test. I want you to take them to the water side and have them get a drink. Get a drink, meaning recreation. They're being recreated, being filled with something good. So this is something good, but how do you do it? Some of them, it says, got down on their knees. Ninety-seven hundred of the ten thousand, it says, knelt down to drink. So these ones got all wrapped up in the recreation, the water in this case. Three hundred of them, though, it doesn't say they knelt down. They kept their eyes up. They were aware of the battle. They were fit soldiers because they could take in recreation in a way that didn't distract them from the greater purpose that they were on. So these guys didn't linger at the water. They didn't take too much time away. They took that refreshment. They took that recreation. Just enough. Proverbs 25, 16 says, If you find honey, eat just enough or you'll get sick. The lesson is this. The recreation that we are engaged in, it, it can't cause us to temporarily forget the things of God. If it does, then it's not recreation as God designed it to be. Satan wants to divert us and distract us from our purpose in God. These soldiers needed water. We need recreation. But if it obscures our sense of God's presence, we're in big trouble. Because 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. We never take a vacation from the work of the Lord. We are always giving ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, and we take recreation for the purpose of being able to do that work more effectively. Now, one form of recreation turns out it was amusement. For me, when I was a young person, and even in college, and even up to just a couple of years ago, I was obsessed. I was an Avid watcher of college basketball. And now this is hard for me to speak on this because this is still pretty fresh. I only gave this up a couple of years ago realizing that for me, when I'd sit and watch Michigan State basketball games for two hours straight, my thoughts rarely, if ever, turned to God and the things of God and the purpose and identity and mission that I have in Him. For me, I was trying to imagine Jesus and the apostles or, or, or the great reformers of the past engaging in an activity like this for four hours a week. Just immersed in in watching a game, their thoughts not dwelling upon spiritual realities. And I was convicted and I was convinced. And I said, I realize now when Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, that that meant something to me because I was apart from him while watching these games. I want to share a clip of another individual who was convicted in this area. Take a listen.
0: Always thought, boy, would it be fun, you know, and exciting to be on a NASCAR, you know, pit crew racing, going all over the country and stuff. And as I looked at the time that those guys spent, it's a sixteen hour a day job, five days a week, load the carp, get to the racetrack, the races on Sunday, load the thing up, get back to the shop, I realized that I couldn't give that commitment to it and have a family you know, as a result of that, I became a an avid fan, always kind of maybe vicariously living through the, you know, the television, something that I wish that I could have done, but just didn't want to make the, the sacrifice for it. In the few hours that I had on the weekends to spend with my children, I was making it a priority to watch sporting events, whether it was a NASCAR race in the summer or football in the fall. I believe that I was a slave to television. I let it dictate what Nick Wasdrup was gonna do and when he was gonna do it by by what I wanted to watch. I'm a mechanic by trade, I work a lot of hours. If I'm not here to impact my children as much during the week, then I'm spending six hours watching you know, football games or three and a half hours watching NASCAR races, that's really showing my children with the limited amount of time that I have available to them, this is more important to me. And every race is the most important race until the race is over and then it's next weekend's race and you realize you're just being sucked into a into a cycle and then you're buying into it you have to keep watching to see what's important who's dictating what's important it's not me i want my children to realize that you know god is the center of my life not the television that was the real um, gut check for me, the real heart check for me. The other thing is it influences your mood. With sports, if your team doesn't win, you know the rest of the day's ruined for your family because you're grumpy. Or if your favorite NASCAR driver didn't, you know, didn't bring home the trophy, um, your family's suffering because you're upset. As I was watching these things, and I started to pay attention to what was happening in the commercials, um, all of a sudden you start to realize this thing is controlling and training not only me but more so my children. That was the part that really really became upsetting to me. I had to get away from that. I didn't want my kids to see that those were the values that I was holding above all else. I realized that just unscrewing it from the wall wasn't going to be enough. I had to take a pair of wire cutters and cut that cable into pieces. I physically disconnected it and I cut it. Now the bridge has been destroyed to the past. We have to go forward. I don't regret it at all. I don't miss television at all. As my, you know, friends will say, "Did you see so and so in a movie?" I don't even know who the so and so is, let alone what the movie was. I have no idea who's the, the, um, you know, the popular actresses or actors, or you know, what the what the box office smash was. But I can tell you, you know, when Samantha rode her bicycle for the first time without training wheels, I can tell you those things. I can't remember any of those games, but I can, I can remember a lot of those, those things that, that I would have missed out on if I hadn't taken those cutters and cut that cable.
1: Captivated. Excellent film, and um, actually you can get that at mediaonthebrain.net. But moving forward on this issue of spectator sports, what happens... In, in studies in Great Britain, is they've found that because of this increase, uh, buildup, a uh, chemical buildup in the body, and, and the, the taxing effect that is happening cardiovascularly to the person viewing this exciting game, we're looking at a twenty-five percent increase in heart attacks on game day and the couple days after game day on a big game in Britain. So they've discovered in studies there. That's a very serious. Increase. I did a little digging on uh, red meat, you know, the, the, the dangers of eating too much meat. Eating red meat can cause cardiovascular problems. And what they found is that uh, eating one serving of red meat a day increases your chances of mortality from heart attack by 21 and 19 percent, respectively. So that's red meat, the big scare of a red meat. This is even bigger, 25 percent increase in heart attacks Because of the, wow, you get all pumped up, you get fired up. In fact, what you have is a 300 to 400% increase in blood flow to the muscles. And this this fight or flight response. is very unhealthy for the system. And as I explained earlier, you're supposed to be having this reaction when you're running from a lion, not when you're watching them, as in the Detroit lions, and your body's not doing anything. To financially support this broadcast, visit 11thHourDispatch.com or write to us at 11333 Bacchus Road, Lakeview, Michigan, 48850. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Romans 12 verse 2 tells us that there is an effort to conform our minds to the worldly pattern. And where is this mind manipulation agenda more effective than through the 21st century media and entertainment? MTV founder Robert Pittman famously stated At MTV, we don't just shoot for the 14 year olds, we own them. It's time to wake up, folks. At every church I speak at, folks say the same thing. Scott, why didn't anybody tell us this before? So, folks, grab a pencil and write this down. Media on the Brain. It's a six-DVD series that will arm you with the vital information on the undeniable effects of entertainment media and how to break free. Visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Use promo code RADIO for a reduced suggested donation rate. What does it take to raise spiritually strong young people in our homes? Well, the George Barna research results are in. Parents who have had actual measurable success, who have raised their children to become solid Christian young adults, these parents loved to delve into matters of faith as a family unit. They opened the Bible together during certain set times, but also they used the scriptures as spiritual lessons during those teachable moments in the child's day. Any parents with children in the home need to know this. Write down the DVD title and share it with them right away. It's called How to Raise the Remnant. Now more than ever... Parents are in desperate need of solid biblical counsel to guide us back to God's plan for raising godly children in these last days. Visit 11thHourDispatch.com and use promo code RADIO for a reduced suggested donation rate. Wonderful, merciful Savior Precious Redeemer and Friend Who would have thought that a lamb could Rescue
0: the souls of men Oh, you rescue the souls of men
1: Moving on with a few more points i was convicted in this area when trying to overcome lust as a, as a as a man in this culture and you're watching these exotic dancers known as cheerleaders out there on the field doesn't look like cheerleaders did decades ago not going to be helpful for us Also, we learned about mirror neurons. Remember the monkey? When he looked at the peanuts being eaten, it was the same as when he ate them. So when we see aggression being acted out and played out in a sports arena, what's happening in our brain is we are not just watching aggression, but we are also experiencing aggression, more so in our neurology. I also asked the question when it came to spectator sports, am I seeing Christ-like behavior modeled by the fans, the coaches, the players, and, and I had a conversation with a man who had decided to give up viewing watching this stuff with his family. And he said, you know what? When I was a kid when you used to we used to watch this stuff as a family, it was the, there was a lot better behavior happening on the field with the coaches, the players, the fans, everybody. But today, I can't justify it anymore. It's very, very much not Christ-like what I'm seeing. Another few thoughts. I, I actually asked myself, am I hoping for people to lose And perform poorly when I'm watching this game. Is that a Christ-like impulse when I want somebody to perform poorly? Or does watching this make me more Christ-like? When I'm watching this basketball game, this football game, whatever, does it help me to have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness? Or is it bringing the opposite out of me? What happens within me when they make a bad call? And what are you getting fired up about anyway? When your team wins, you're a fan. You know what fan is short for? Fanatic. I'm going, yeah, I guess I really was a fanatic because I'm getting all fired up about this game. And really, in reality, it's demanding hours of my attention before, during and after the game. And not just that, it's the subject of my conversation. It's what I want to talk about. It's what I defend and argue over as my team. It's so important to me. It's. I have more passion about this team than my real life that I'm living. I know more statistics than scriptures I know the names of the players better than the heroes of the faith. I faced this, and I looked in the mirror, and the Lord said, you need to give up watching this stuff. I was like, no, it's so fun. But I had to face that. You know, you get so fired up about it, it is a little bit silly, isn't it? What are they producing? This game is being played, sheerly for the entertainment value of it, and nothing productive is happening. And We say, I am a fan, a supporter of that team, and they've done nothing for the world. It's kind of sad if you think about it. This leads me to a question. As Christians, are we merely looking for the good to outweigh the bad? Sure, there's inappropriately dressed cheerleaders and lots of bad attitudes and hyper-competitive things that are rooted in upward climb in heaven. Okay, I got you. But there's some good things too. You know, when I look at Philippians 4.8, God asks us to look for the true, the noble, the right, the admirable, the pure I've got to look for the pure. If I want to look for something where the good outweighs the bad, the devil's got all kinds of options for me out there. He knows how to wrap his poison in some juicy looking, tasty and healthy and nutritious item. And we bite right in and we get the poison right along with it. You know what the Bible says about this? It says, be careful how you walk, making the most of your time. Because the days are evil. Now I have a question. Are the days more evil today or they, were they more evil in Paul's day when he wrote this? We've seen the depravity of humankind moving forward in every way. And the days are evil. So how much more now do we need to be careful how we walk? We need to make the most of our time for the days are evil. This was the message that the Lord said to me. You're wasting your time. Even if it was completely morally innocuous. Spending two hours viewing this game, or in the case of a football game, three plus, there's more important things. Take that water. Spend time in recreation, but don't be frittering away your time like this. I love the way Charles Finney talks about this time issue. He was a second great awakening preacher in the 19th century, said it this way, again, no amusement can be innocent that involves the squandering of precious time that might be better employed to the glory of God and the good of man. You can hear the urgency in his voice here. Life is short. Time is precious. We have but one life to live. Much is to be done. The world is in darkness. A world of sinners are to be enlightened and, if possible, saved. You see, people's salvation is on the line. And here I am, vegging out for hours, watching something, and there are dying souls. Urgency. We are required to work while the day lasteth. Our commission and work require dispatch. No time is to be lost. If our hearts are right, our work is pleasant. If rightly performed... It affords the highest enjoyment and is itself the highest amusement. In other words, when we do the work of God, life is fun. There's a lot of joy. And I'll tell you, I I said earlier, I've been on both sides of this. And I have far more joy, far more peace now than I did when I was immersing myself in the entertainment culture. And if you think about this, what is it then for you? Maybe it's not sports entertaining. Maybe it's not viewing spectator sports. But something absorbs your energies that could be diverted to the purpose of God. Something obscures your sense of God's presence in your life. For some people, maybe nothing in this seminar has been their issue. But maybe for you, it's Facebook. For a lot of people, they get on Facebook and they can be on there for a long time with very unhealthy things happening. In fact, a 2008 study showed that people had this irrational drive for popularity on Facebook. And it was irrational for the following reason. In the survey, they were asked, are you concerned about revealing private information about yourself? Oh yeah, you know, you don't want to do that. But then they went ahead and did it anyway. Because they needed to feel affirmed and popular and admired in some way. So what is your mindset on Facebook? Is it self My profile pic, my image that I want to portray to people, my popularity, and so on. Is it, according to the 2010 study, we see that this generation is the most narcissistic, means self-centered generation ever studied. Is that a part of your dynamic when you're on Facebook? Self-centeredness. Getting on Facebook somehow brings me at the center of everything. Well, how about some other mindsets that can be on, on our minds when we're on Facebook? Maybe it's a spirit of gossip. Oh, what's so-and-so up to? Is that, a, is that a healthy and holy impulse? What is behind that driving interest in other people's lives? It could be healthy and holy. In fact, I had a person come to, up to me after my seminar and say, I've dedicated to all my time on Facebook being evangelistic in nature, praying for people, blessing people, encouraging people. But what's behind most of our drives to just know what's going on? Is that a holy impulse? Or maybe it's jealousy that's on the mindset in Facebook. If you think about it, maybe it's a spirit of coveting and envy of other people's experiences, other people's appearances, or some sort of infatuation. You know, you're following somebody who's like, ooh, you know, is that a holy thing from Christ? Some other thoughts on Facebook. Do you experience fear and insecurity over the thought of being out of the loop? Is that controlling desire and need a healthy one? It's like, I have to know what's going on. If I don't get on Facebook today, I'm, I'm going to be out of the loop. Is that a necessary thing? Are your thoughts on God and the purpose that God has for you when you're on Facebook And are you crafting sort of this image, this persona that you want to portray to the world that's different than you, that's not the real you? Maybe you're uncomfortable with the real you, like the gaming culture we talked about, so you create a social networking persona that's not real. You can feel better about yourself on Facebook than you do when you're in a real-life conversation or a real-life social setting. Why is Facebook so captivating? Studies have actually shown that the same areas of the brain stimulated by a sexual appetite or a food appetite arousal are also being inflamed when you go on Facebook and post a status or, or or you see an exciting thing on there. Same areas of the brain. And you know from part five how a process addiction can be just as captivating as a chemical addiction. Same thing here again with Facebook. But maybe it's not facebook for you or spectator sports that has a tendency to obscure your sense of God's presence, maybe it's the constant responding to the texting on the phone. Hypertexting is the latest new term out there. We have people who are accustomed now to sending literally thousands of texts per month. Teenagers ages 13 to 17 are texting 3,339 text messages per month on average. That is an enormous amount of texting. It's not just happening during the day. They're actually finding in surveys and studies that a shocking number of young people are sleeping with their phones on and under their pillow so that they can answer the text if it comes in in the middle of the night. And this is an age group that's supposed to be getting over nine hours of sleep per night. Only a small fraction are getting even eight. And and the radiation coming at their brain from the phone all night is also another health concern. It's a very serious thing. We feel the need to constantly be answering, to be immediately available to everybody 24-7. Well, when then do I have those silent, quiet times with God? When do I have the time to just myself or just with another human being where you're not necessarily needing to be there with me in the text? But we love our iPhone so much that it made me wonder, what if we treated our Bible like our cell phone? This was a good email uh, forward that went around for a while. It says, what if we carried our Bible with us everywhere like we do with our cell phone? What if we had to turn around if we forgot it at home, check for messages throughout the day? You have your Bible there in case of an emergency, but not just that. You know the average cell phone use is an hour plus a day? If we spent that kind of time in our Bibles. You know the Bible does have a free unlimited usage plan. No weak signals and no being disconnected from the provider. Is the cell phone a bad thing? No, it's a wonderful tool. Is Facebook a bad thing? No, it's a great evangelistic tool to connect with others, to bless them, and so on, as I mentioned earlier. But we have to ask, what kind of balance are we finding with these technological tools? Seriously, folks. And I have to say, I like checking my email. That's probably the one area in this series, this seminar, that I really, you know, I want to get on there. You know, there may be another ministry opportunity, another church inviting us to have the Media on the Brain seminar there. Exciting things happening. And it all comes through on the email. I don't do much on the cell phone. It all comes through on the email. But do we have a compulsive need to continually go to it? Because you get a little bit of a pleasure boost when you get that. It's a little social reward, a little reinforcement. Hey, you're important. I sent you an email. (laughs) <laughs> Are these things going to dominate us so that we have the behavior of an addict as they found in this study where you're answering these emails even at the demise of your own intelligence? Let's close with a Bible verse. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. This is our charge as we go from the Media on the Brain seminar. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. When we turn our eyes from worthless things and fix our eyes upon Jesus, by beholding we will become changed. The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.
0: Listen next time for the second portion of this session. To obtain your very own DVD set of Media on the Brain, visit beltoftruthministries.org or call them at 616-238-5058.